Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Welcome back to Live Mike. I am Lee Lonsberry. There's a, a pretty somber tone to today's episode of this program, uh, and that is appropriate, of course. We are uh, mourning the loss of an officer here in the state of Utah. Uh, we are also following some pretty serious events transpiring in Minneapolis, Minnesota, Right now, uh, there is much to be somber about, but I, I do want to let you know that uh, uh, there will be moments of levity. Uh, you know, we are going to uh, cover some lighter fare later on in the program, uh, but we need to uh, pay due time, of course, to uh, the matters of such great importance here in the state of Utah right now. Uh, one of them is a theme which has been proving true for some time now, and it is an unfortunate. Uh, a reality which has come about due to these new circumstances imposed by the coronavirus. So many of us have had our lives interrupted. The way we live and make a living has been changed, and there is much uncertainty. In a number of aspects of our lives, there is uncertainty. Financially, our, our income may have been interrupted pretty significantly by this coronavirus and the reaction to it. Also, we may find ourselves at home a bit more. Our homes are now our classrooms and our workplaces and our places of recreation, all of that in addition to the place where we rest our heads. And all of that, all of this change and uncertainty and anxiety and pressure and stress, it builds on many. And one of the unfortunate realities is that some of that anxiety and stress has led to a heightened number of domestic violence situations. I've been in touch with various law enforcement jurisdictions throughout the state uh, over the course of the past few months, and they all tell me the same thing, that domestic violence calls are up, that their officers are responding to an increased number of domestic violence calls. When I first observed this trend, we, of course, reached out to the Utah Domestic Violence Coalition, uh, and the executive director of that coalition joins us now and again on this program. I'm grateful to Jen Oxborough for making herself available to us. Jen, how are you? Hey, I'm doing really well. Thank you so much for including us. Just heartbroken, though, over this latest tragedy. It's just happening far too often. So thank you for covering this and um, giving us a chance to, to talk about it, help people know where to turn for help. The details, the story that led to the events, rather, that led to uh, the loss of life for this officer stemmed from a domestic violence call. When you first heard the, this tale and the circumstances surrounding uh, the death of this officer, what did you think? What was your reaction? The very first 
thing that I heard led me to believe that it was likely domestic violence. Um, it is the most deadly call for law enforcement to respond to. More officers die in the line of duty responding to domestic violence calls than any other type of call, um, especially when a firearm is present. It just takes the risk up so exponentially. So um, unfortunately, you know, my my initial reaction was right, and uh, it was a domestic violence call, and um, we had this outcome, this tragedy that just um, is heartbreaking and, and has such a huge toll in so many different ways on our communities. What's unique about the mindset of a perpetrator in this circumstance that makes them such a threat to law enforcement? You know, when um, some of the most predictive factors are presently when someone is suicidal, when they have access to a gun, um, especially if they have hurt a family member or a current or former intimate partner, if they're losing control of the thing that they're trying to control with that violence and aggression, that's when risk goes up. And if a firearm is present and the person is also suicidal, that makes it a really difficult, challenging environment for law enforcement to engage in. Ogden PD are some of our initial uh, partners in our statewide lethality assessment protocol. They're very capable when it comes to domestic violence. They know what they're doing, and they've been really exceptional partners to us for quite a long time. Um, so, it, it, you know, this is no one's fault except for the person who chooses to perpetrate the violence. And we're hoping that we can do more in our communities to recognize that sooner and get people help sooner. What, uh, what, what can we do to get help to where it needs to be sooner? We can recognize the warning signs. So again, if somebody that you care about is under tremendous stress, some of the things you just mentioned a moment ago, um, families that were in stressful situations have had the volume turned way up on that, right? Like there's more economic stress now than ever before for families and individuals. Um, if you're starting to see a high degree of isolation or erratic behavior, certainly if someone's talking about hurting other people or hurting themselves, especially if they have access to a deadly weapon, um, and we're not anti-gun, we're just saying that when a weapon, a firearm is present in these high-risk situations, it makes them even more likely to turn out deadly. So when you recognize those risk factors, talk to someone. If you don't know how to, call us and we'll help you start that conversation. If it feels like a dangerous situation, immediately always call 911 and ask for help. Um, we really, we, we can't stress enough that even though um, it's been a challenge for our programs, help is available statewide, 24-7 for free, totally confidentially. No matter what side of the situation you're on, reach out to us. We want to help. Um, and, and we do. We take about 43,000 crisis calls per year. So a lot of people are finding us, and we want even more people to know that we're here. And, uh, and no judgment, we, we want to help people find solutions. What about those who are experiencing the, the symptoms that you have just described, who may be listening right now, what resources are available to them if they feel that they are isolating themselves more uh, than is typical, if they are feeling these urges to hurt others or themselves, uh, what resources are available to them if they are of the mind uh, to, to seek help for themselves and, and those who they may be uh, capable of injuring? There are a number of resources available, uh, case by case, county by county. Um, we can help you find the best resources possible, totally for free, totally confidential. You can call us at 1-800-897-LINK, L-I-N-K. So that's 1-800-897-5465. Tell the person that answers the phone who is a highly trained professional advocate that has 
huge confidentiality provisions. Um, that they actually exceed HIPAA, so it's it's more strict. Our confidentiality provisions are more strictly enforced than when you go see your doctor. Um, you don't even have to tell us your name. We can take calls in over a hundred languages. Call and talk to an advocate, and they'll help you find the resources. Tons of resources we um, now in place in Utah to help people who are experiencing suicidal thoughts or ideation, maybe planning um, suicide and need some resources, some help. If that's you or someone you care about, reach out to us, and we'll connect you to the best resource in your community or a place that feels safe for you. We won't make any decisions for you. We'll help you make those decisions and connect with the resource that's right for you. Jen Oxborough, Executive Director of the Utah Domestic Violence Coalition, thank you for your time, your expertise, and more than anything for the work uh, and service you are providing this community. You're saving lives. Thank you. Thank you, Lee. Thank you so much. Be safe. Of course. You heard her mention there that they are even greater than HIPAA, that the the confidentiality and the privacy which with, with which they treat each and every one of these cases is paramount. The reason they do that is, of course, because you know that reaching out for help uh, can sometimes, in the mind of some, be a stigmatizing thing. We have a tendency to affix uh, stigma to reaching out for help. It is not a sign that we are weak. Let me assure you that it is a sign that you are strong. If you are able to recognize in yourself that you are a danger to yourself or others, and you are one who reaches out to help, you are demonstrating strength. And that's admirable. And the shame would come only if you were to shun that help. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to take a look at Twitter. Specifically, a tweet from the president. No, not, not, not one you might think. This one has to do with $64.5 million on its way to Ogden, Utah. Why is it headed that way and how will it be spent? We'll get the details next on Live Mike. I'm Lee Lonsberry, and this is KSL News Radio.